welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good afternoon, and welcome to this episode of the Thoracic Surgery Residents Association's podcast series. My name is Benjamin Smoot, and I'm an integrated cardiac surgery resident at the University of Pennsylvania. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Stephanie Fuller for today's TSRA podcast on adult congenital heart disease. Dr. Fuller is the Thomas L. Spray Endowed Chair in Pediatric Cardiothoracic Surgery at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and serves as the Program Director for the Congenital Cardiothoracic Surgery Fellowship. Dr. Fuller is also Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania and serves as Director of the Philadelphia Adult Congenital Heart Center, which facilitates the multidisciplinary collaboration of care for adults living with congenital heart disease. Dr. Fuller, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much, Ben. Today we'll be discussing the surgical care of adults with failing Fontan physiology. We'll begin with a brief case presentation followed by a more generalizable discussion regarding the unique challenges that are inherent in caring for patients with adult congenital heart disease. So, Dr. Fuller, for a bit of context before we begin, can you describe what congenital heart defects fall under the umbrella term of single ventricle? How and when are these defects uh, repaired in childhood? Sure. So, you know, it's, it's actually a large group of uh, diagnoses, and I think what one way to think about it is typically to think about what constitutes a functional and adequate systemic ventricle. So whether it's a right-sided ventricle or a left-sided ventricle. Typical true single ventricle um, morphology would be, for example, hypoplastic left heart syndrome in which there's a smaller diminutive left ventricle, typically with a combination of either aortic stenosis or atresia together with mitral stenosis or mitral atresia, both of which render the left ventricle inadequate to provide blood supply to the body. Another example would be tricuspid atresia in which the right side is quite small. And then we have a lot of kind of physiologic variants that are single ventricle, what we call variants. And those tend to be things like unbalanced AV canal in which one ventricle is smaller than the other and the heart's unable to be adequately septated. Uh, double inlet left ventricle, another example in which both atria feed through uh, independent AV valves into a single left ventricle. Uh, heterotaxy syndrome, particularly the asplenia type, patients who lack a spleen who tend to have a single right ventricle. This can be a double outlet right ventricle where there's kind of amb- ambiguity in terms of both the visceral and the atrial um, situs. It's a wide arrangement of kind of systemic and pulmonary venous connections, um, oftentimes very unusual uh, that need to be addressed. And the other example for a right sided lesion would be pulmonary atresia with intact ventricular septum the most uh, severe form of which would have uh, right dependent, uh, right ventricular dependent coronary circulation, and that tends to be a case in which the right ventricle isn't really able to be utilized, in which case those patients in some cases can be septated, but in many cases end up going down a single ventricle pathway as well. So we're really talking about a lot of kind of complex lesions. Um, They're repaired typically via staged palliation, um, often starting as a neonate. And and a good way to think about these in the neonatal period is, you know, for a patient who may not have a balanced systemic and pulmonary circulation, we really tend to think 
gee, is there too much or is there not enough pulmonary blood flow? And that's often the first question that kind of sets the stage for subsequent operations for these kids. Uh, the classic operation for hypoplastic left heart syndrome is the Norwood operation, which involves an arch augmentation with what we call a Damis K. Stanzel. It's, it's uh, actually an amalgamation of joining the pulmonary artery and the pulmonary uh, root as the outflow tract for the single ventricle together with a diminutive aorta, an atrial septectomy, and a source of pulmonary blood flow. Other patients who have uh, inadequate pulmonary blood flow um, can undergo a, a shunt in the form of either, you know, the classic BT shunt, uh, well-known and well-described as a systemic to pulmonary artery shunt. Uh, we do that modified these days with um, actually using a, a small Gore-Tex graft. Um, patients who have too much pulmonary blood flow in infancy undergo a pulmonary arterial band. And that's really kind of how we palliate babies in the neonatal period, hoping to get them home to kind of grow and thrive a little bit until they come back for their subsequent palliation. So any, any baby who has a shunt or who has a band, for example, is eventually going to outgrow those. So typically around four to six months, the babies are ready for their stage two. Uh, that tends to be a cable pulmonary connection, superior cable pulmonary connection, oftentimes referred to as a Glenn operation. Um, and that tends to be an end to side anastomosis of the superior vena cava to the right pulmonary artery. The alternative is to do what we call a hemifontan. It's a little more complicated and often involves a pulmonary arterioplasty. And uh, kids do very well until they're between two to four years of age, at which point they start to become a little bit cyanotic and they're ready for what what we refer to as the fontan or the complete cable-pulmonary connection. And that incorporates all the lower extremity venous return, the IVC flow, in, into an unobstructed pathway uh, to the pulmonary arteries. So all of these kind of serve over, over a period of years to kind of establish um, a systemic circulation functioning off a single ventricle and a pulmonary circulation that's actually um, kind of flow-mediated flow and flow-dependent but not pump-dependent. So all these patients tend to be fairly complex. Thank you. That's very helpful and uh, hopefully will help set the stage in our continued discussion regarding uh, adult congenital heart disease moving on. So without further ado, let's go ahead and begin with our uh, case presentation. Uh, MJ is a 27-year-old female presented in the emergency department with shortness of breath and palpitations. She states she's had a few heart surgeries as a kid, but she's unsure of what they were because she moved around a lot as a child and thought her heart had been uh, quote-unquote fixed. She states that she started uh, feeling progressively worse over the past few years. She's been hospitalized five times in the past three years for similar symptoms, um, and this is her third admission in just eight months. So records from her most recent admission identify a past medical history of pulmonary atresia with uh, intact ventricular septum and a hypoplastic RV. Uh, she's now status post lateral tunnel fontan, but not exactly sure when that was. So what other specific questions would you ask or physical exam findings would you want to know or be on the lookout for um, in an adult patient with a prior uh, fontan repair who's presenting with shortness of breath and palpitations? Great question, Ben. So this is kind of part of the part of the challenge of adult congenital, and what makes it really interesting is these patients present, and oftentimes, you know, they're they're 
their historians or their medical historians were their parents or siblings. And oftentimes as they become independent into adulthood, um, it's, it's challenging for them to understand what happened when they were so young. And you really kind of start working backwards. We use a lot of kind of data um, and imaging data, for example, to help supplement a patient's at time poor history and try to piece together what their surgical course was. So it's a little bit of a mystery at times. Um, patients who have had a Fontan operations or patients who, who are currently a Fontan can have two types of Fontans. One's lateral tunnel that you mentioned for this patient. One's an extra cardiac Fontan. There's another kind of amalgamation of these two, which is called an intra-extra intra cardiac. Um, and for patients with a lateral tunnel, it means that they basically have an intra-arterial tunnel. Um, it's, it's typically performed after the hemifontan, but really the majority of the pathway from the IVC up to the pulmonary artery, a lot of it is, is their um, atrial free wall, the right atrial free wall that constitutes that pathway as opposed to patients who have an extra cardiac fontan. And they tend to have a uh, tube graft that goes from their um, uh, IVC typically up to the underside of their right pulmonary artery. And typically we put in like an 18 to 20 millimeter tube graft. The advantage here is that theoretically you avoid placing atrial suture lines at these patients. That becomes important because one of the hallmarks for um, Fontan patients can be, um, and, and they're often plagued by arrhythmias. So certainly in patients who um, present with shortness of breath and palpitations, I would be very suspicious of arrhythmias on these patients. Um, oftentimes other things that you want to look for is um, signs of decreasing exercise tolerance in these patients, something that's very common amongst Fontan patients, fluid retention. Um, for these patients and um, increasing abdominal girth or ascites, which can be very co common in these patients as well. Great, thank you. Uh, so on that note, uh, further review and questioning shows that she's got a past medical history of intermittent A-flutter, renal insufficiency. Uh, on social history, she was held back in the third and seventh grade, but ultimately graduated high school, works at Starbucks as a barista, uh, lives a normal life with her boyfriend, sexually active. Uh, smokes occasionally some alcohol. Uh, she takes Lasix every day but can't tolerate uh, an ACE inhibitor uh, due to her kidney function. Uh, she's bradycardic on any sort of beta blocker, so she doesn't take one of those either. Uh, but on review sy symptoms, she says that she's been coughing up a little bit of pink frothy sputum, but she's noticed some blood as well. Uh, she's had some coughing fit every few, fits every few days that have been gotten a little bit worse. Uh, and as we discussed, some progressive leg swelling that really doesn't seem to go away with her Lasix. Uh, objectively, uh, vital signs uh, of note are her oxygen saturation is at 85%. She says at home she's usually around 88 or 89. Uh, she's small, short stature, cyanotic, clubbing, no increased worth of breath, particular, breath particularly. Um, she does have some JVD distension, single S1, S2, likely because of her uh, lack of tricuspular pulmonary valve. Um, lower extremity edema. As far as labs go, uh, her creatinine is a little bit up from baseline of 1.0 to 1 1.3. Uh, LFTs are slightly elevated, BNP is slightly elevated, troponins are within normal limits. So just to begin, what do you make of her oxygen saturation um, of 85%? Is this concerning? Um, what to make of that? 
Well, this is kind of, you know, where it becomes really important to try and understand a baseline. So the data that you provided in terms of asking a patient, where do your stats normally run? And when you're at home and particularly when you exercise, I think that's a really important key to this information. Oftentimes when we perform a Fontan, we do what's called a fenestration, which is making a small communication between the pulmonary circulation and the systemic circulation. So for example, on an extracardiac Fontan, that fenestration is made by you know, a four millimeter punch in the side of the graft and anastomosing that to the um, pulmonary atrial side, so to the common atrium. And that allows for a little bit of desaturated blood, obviously, to get over into the systemic circulation. So most patients with a Fontan don't have an arterial saturation of 100% if they've been fenestrated before. Um, fenestrations tend to preserve cardiac output, um, particularly during exercise for these patients, um, and they can be very helpful in terms of um, you know, reducing kind of perioperative or postoperative um, effusions, which are very common in the Fontan population. Um, so it's important to know if a patient had a fenestration performed, but also important to know on advanced imaging whether a patient still has a patent fenestration. And that's something that you can usually see by echocardiography, either transthoracic or, or uh, TE imaging, often easier to see by transthoracic imaging. So I would guess if she's used to being desaturated, um, she might have a fenestration that's open. Of course, you can't necessarily guarantee that. So other reasons that patients might be desaturated as a Fontan could do with low cardiac output, could do with obstruction in the Fontan pathway, either at the level of the conduit at the SVC pulmonary artery junction, or even potentially at the in, within the pulmonary arteries themselves. Patients can establish a lot of collateral circulation, particularly patients who are cyanotic at baseline. So often venovenous collaterals can contribute to um, increased desaturation in these patients. And that can be very, very common as well. The other contributor to um, you know, decreased saturation, as I mentioned, would be low cardiac output. And a lot of these patients do suffer from um, AV valve regurgitation. So in a patient with PAIVS, I'd also want to take a close look at her mitral valve and make sure that her mitral valve is actually competent and that she has a minimal amount of regurgitation from that as well. Um, there's a lot of venous congestion in these patients, and that's something that we have to be very, very careful with. So, you know, the other thing is, you know, you mentioned LFTs, and obviously assessing a patient's kind of coagulation status is important. Many Fontans are maintained on anticoagulation, but oftentimes if they present with an elevated um, elevated INR, it can be an indication of really having their liver be quite affected by the Fontan circulation and stasis in the Fontan pathway. Great. Thank you very much. Um, on that note, why is Fontan physiology sometimes considered uh, a multi-system disease, or what's the underlying unifying pathology of, of what's going on in MJ? She's got um, not only progressive heart failure symptoms, but uh, palpitations, renal disease, blood tinge sputum, peripheral edema, uh, as we mentioned, LFTs are rising. What sort of ties all this together? Well, in, in the Fontan, it can be kind of complicated. Um, it, the patients don't typically present like they would with, say, for example, systolic dysfunction. You might have a Fontan who comes in in heart failure and has totally normal preserved systolic function. 
It's also not as simple as just having diastolic dysfunction, although you can have elevated um, you know, end diastolic pressures. Oftentimes it tends to be just resistance in the Fontan circulation itself. Things that can affect it tend to be pulmonary vascular resistance, the presence of collaterals that we mentioned, um, regurgitation from the AV valves, um, the presence of thrombosis or clot within the Fontan pathway, uh, sinus node dysfunction, which is very common in atrial dysrhythmias, um, which can really be quite deadly for a patient with the Fontan circulation. Um, intracardiac shunts that can be right to left, venovenous collaterals, the presence of pulmonary AVMs, portal hypertension and cirrhosis, um, and certainly, you know, really um, decreasing functional status, all of which can be very common in Fontan patients. So when they present kind of not feeling well, the etiology can be really wide ranging and uh, oftentimes it's not just one single um, you know, source, believe it or not. Makes sense. Uh, sounds challenging as well. So let's get back to our case. Uh, MJ ends up being admitted and started an IV diuresis. Uh, how might she be further worked up? Specifically, what imaging would you and the adult congenital uh, cardiologist order? What would you be looking for? Um, are there any limitations to these imaging studies? And uh, what non-surgical interventions or percutaneous interventions might, might be possible? So the first thing is to really kind of perform a, a, a thorough, besides a thorough history and physical on this patient, is to perform a really good um, echocardiogram because that does give you a lot of baseline data regarding ventricular function, regarding obstruction in the Fontan pathway that can be, usually be visualized um, by echocardiography. Um, certainly an EKG that will inform you about arrhythmias in the patient. Um, oftentimes for these patients, we recommend that they have um, an MRI, which is also very helpful in terms of giving us physiologic data for these patients. Uh, it can inform us regarding what their pulmonary blood flow is, if there's differential pulmonary blood flow from one side to the other. Um, often tells us what regurgitant fractions are from either AV, AV or semilunar valves, which can be very helpful. Um, many of these patients, we recommend that they undergo liver ultrasound or liver imaging. Um, many centers recommend liver biopsy on patients who have had a Fontan for quite some time. And um, oftentimes, some sort of kind of three-dimensional imaging, I mentioned MRI, but also CTA can be very helpful to look for sources of uh, pulmonary AVMs, venovenous collaterals, um, et cetera. Many of the patients, when they present with Fontan failure, um, can present, like I mentioned, in a variety of ways. So late Fontan failure oftentimes can be protein-losing enteropathy or plastic bronchitis. Um, both of which kind of are hallmarks of a failing Fontan and, um, you know, are diagnosed either by bronchoscopy or by lymphatic assessment for many patients. Can you just briefly describe what those are for folks who might not be familiar with them? Sure. So patients who have um, protein-losing enteropathy tend to be patients who accumulate ascites um, and oftentimes have an intolerance of um, feeds. So they tend to be hypoalbuminemic. Uh, it's a lymphatic uh, dysfunction of theirs. They tend to get peripheral edema, pleural effusions. They can have malabsorption symptoms, diarrhea. 
Um, it's a little bit unknown exactly what the etiology is, but related to mesenteric vascular flow and um, abnormalities of the lymphatic system and intestinal lymphangiectasia. Um, and it really can cause a lot of problems for these patients where they come in for serial um, um, paracentesis, for example. They're maintained on um, medications in an effort to minimize the amount of ascites that they have. There's quite a balance between obviously keeping them um, diuresed and making sure that they um, are not losing excessively through their um, through their uh, um, ascites in that case, where it can be quite a challenge to maintain the, the, the vascular um, compliance for these patients. So they're really quite challenging to manage. Uh, many of these patients are treated with enteric steroids and um, there's really no good cure for a lot of these patients. Immunosuppression has been used, but ultimately a number of these patients get referred for cardiac transplantation when um, management strategies fail. It's the same for plastic bronchitis, which is an interesting disease in which patients tend to present with like tachypnea, coughs, and wheezing. And essentially what they do is they tend to cough up casts, um, very, very thick lymphatic fluid um, from the perihilar area tends to leak into the bronchial system and form casts. They almost look like trees that patients cough up. They become stiff and they become um, um, almost uh, uh, rigid in a sense and patients then cough up these casts. Um, again, very difficult to manage this proteinaceous material. Inhaled TPA, for example, has been used to treat those. Pulmonary vasodilators is a big therapy in patients with failing Fontan circulations and ultimately a lot of these patients also proceed to cardiac transplantation. Thank you. Um, you. You had mentioned earlier about pulmonary AVMs and, and with this lymphatic disruption. disruption are, there, um, are there opportunities for uh, percutaneous interventions, catheter ablations, or things of that nature? Yeah, so both can be fairly effective. So oftentimes patients with the Fontan, and certainly every patient before we list them for transplant or consider you know, surgical therapies for them, they do undergo cardiac catheterization, which gives us a lot of baseline information, um, not only regarding the Fontan pathway, but also the function of the ventricle and also the status of the lungs, which is important. So obviously assessing the pulmonary vascular resistance is important to us. Looking at both the uh, pulmonary arteries and the bronchial arteries, um, identifying any fistulas or any pulmonary AVMs that are possible. Um, oftentimes venous fistulas can be uh, coiled or embolized. Um, they tend to recur. Um, in order to do a lymphatic investigation, this often requires a special type of MRI, that's an MR lymphangiography, to identify channels that are evident and potentially intervenable upon um, for the lymphatic system. And then, you know, potential ablation of the lymphatic system is also possible. Um, lastly, the important thing is always kind of assessing these patients from a rhythm standpoint, like, like we talked about earlier, um, which can be done by typically EP studies. We don't tend to provoke these patients. Oftentimes they present in abnormal rhythms and typically we try to perform cardioversion on those patients um, as quickly as possible when they present in abnormal heart rhythms. Great, thank you. Uh, so, just moving on in the case, our patient's hospitalized, goes through a number of days, uh, ultimately goes to the cath lab. Uh, no enlarged bronchial arteries are observed coming from the aortic arch, from her proximal descending aorta, uh, from her subclavian artery. 
uh, or elsewhere. Uh, but she does have some moderately sized venous fistulas coming from the IVC and pulmonary veins and left atrium. Uh, so after three hours in the cath lab, uh, four lesions are embolized. Uh, later in her hospital course, uh, several lymphatics are embolized. She has an ablation performed for a flutter. Uh, and over the next several days, she remains in uh, sinus rhythm. O2 sats improved to 90% on room air. She's discharged home and on a whole thermometer. Um, and four months later, comes back with similar symptoms. Further workup with imaging reveals no other percutaneous interventions are indicated. So what operative interventions can then be done um, for a patient with a failing Fontan? And when do you determine that surgery is appropriate? So these are really challenging discussions, and I think it's important to stress that they're very individualistic for each patient. So, you know, typically we think that as opposed to kind of an old-style atrial pulmonary Fontan in which the entire atrium was used as the Fontan pathway and the atrial appendage was typically anastomosed to the um, to the pulmonary artery itself, um, a lot of the lateral tunnel and extracardiac Fontans don't typically have a difference in, in terms of their long-term kind of uh, treatment or management. Um, and patients tend to kind of progress along um, realistically to heart failure. There's a lot of surgeons who will argue that the Fontan is a failed therapy because ultimately patients do uh, succumb to the complications of a Fontan circulation, many of which are the consequences of multi-organ system failure. So a lot of times this is a very individualistic and tailored discussion for each patient. Um, and patients who had a uh, classic Fontan, we do perform Fontan revisions for those patients, which involves taking them down to an extra cardiac Fontan. This is a pretty involved procedure and also um, involves doing a maze at the time to control their heart rhythms and at the same time implanting a permanent pacemaker in these patients, an epicardial pacemaker, which of course is the preferred route for patients who have a single ventricle. Um, not wanting to put leads into the only ventricle that you have, and also for patients who have a Fontan conduit, really there's no feasible way to get leads into the heart itself, particularly for those patients with a uh, extracardiac Fontan. So oftentimes, if you're going to be performing um, arrhythmia surgery in these patients, it does require reduced sternotomy and requires an epicardial pacemaker, which is certainly involved for these patients. Um, a lot of it involves piecing together kind of what they had done and assessing their individual risk for each patient. So you're starting with a patient population that's already had, in many cases, a minimum of three sternotomies, and some cases more, particularly if they had a revision with pulmonary arterioplasty, for example, um, after their Fontan, or if they've had a Fontan takedown or Fontan revision. Um, many of these patients have had uh, significant surgery, and really assessing the effect of the Fontan circulation on the other organs helps us to kind of qualify whether these patients are candidates for any type of Fontan revision or whether they should go straight to transplant. So you had mentioned some of the um, different imaging studies that were helpful preoperatively to plan. You also mentioned uh, these oftentimes a minimum of three sternotomies. Um, is there ever a time when multiple sternotomies is too many? Uh, is there a limit? Um, and also, in that respect, do you always put patients on uh, peripheral bypass before opening the chest? Um, but what are some technical considerations that, that are relevant, particularly to patients with adult congenital heart disease? 
So really good questions, Ben. And I think, you know, first and foremost, um, it has to be something that each surgeon is comfortable with. So there's not really, I would say, kind of a, a tailored approach um, that every surgeon should follow. A lot of these um, decisions are, in some cases, institutionally made decisions. And in some cases, it's surgeon preference. I think, like we mentioned, having cross-sectional imaging is really important to sternal re-entry in these patients. Um, so having a CT or an MRI, mainly to look at proximity of the structures to the sternum. A lot of helpful information in terms of if there's any calcification along the reconstructed heart, um, the pulmonary arteries, oftentimes if they're reconstructed with homograft or the aorta is reconstructed with homograft, that can become calcified or stenotic over time. So it's really important to know exactly what you're getting into. Um, the, the cardiac catheterization is helpful in that way as well, particularly with the pulmonary arteries. Many of these patients have had multiple interventions, including stent placement in their pulmonary arteries, so um, you have to be prepared to find a little bit of hardware. Um, in some cases, patients have had fenestrations that have been closed or occluded with uh, occlusive devices in the cath lab, um, so you might encounter a little bit more than you were expecting, and that's where the imaging becomes important. It's not just the number of sternotomies. So think, you know, along these patients' lifetimes, they're also getting a number of cardiac catheterizations. So really one of the things I'm, I'm most uh, careful and cautious about is performing duplex imaging of the peripheral cannulation sites and making sure that we have um, a really nice imaging of not only the arterial but also the venous systems so that if you're gonna do uh, peripheral cannulation for these patients, you know what's available to you. Um, for patients who have had multiple calves with large sheets that have been passed through there, it's not uncommon to get either venous or arterial obstruction, which may make it impossible to cannulate these patients peripherally. Um, the same is true for patients who have had a lot of existing or indwelling central lines over the course of their lifetime. So patients who have had particularly upper extremity indwelling lines, if they develop any kind of venous occlusion, um, they're going to have an abundant amount of venous collaterals. And oftentimes that can be very prohibitive in terms of um, sternal re-entry and just puts these patients at an excessive risk for um, bleeding after or during surgery. Um, we try to do uh, CAT scan imaging with bilateral upper arm injections in the cases that we're looking for uh, significant you know, venous collaterals that in some cases are prohibitive for, for safe sternal re-entry. The point about uh, peripheral vascular disease and, and thrombus formation is interesting. Uh, do you see that affecting patients who are emergently cannulated during ECMO? Uh, we do. We do see that during ECMO as well. I mean, oftentimes when our patients get admitted if they're sick, one of the first things we do is actually perform peripheral ultrasounds on them so that they're adequately prepared and then kind of, you know, it's important to us either at the children's hospital or the adult hospital to kind of have a party line on each patient. We know and, and the whole care team is aware, particularly as the care team transitions on, you know, a weekly basis, whether a patient is an ECMO candidate or not, oftentimes dependent on the ability to peripherally cannulate them or potentially they would be a candidate for elective ECMO or periprocedural ECMO, but not ECPR. So there's a difference between those two. Makes sense. Thank you. Uh, let's get back to our case. Uh, so MJ underwent uh, an uneventful Fontan revision with total extracardiac cable pulmonary anastomosis. She comes back to the cardiac ICU. 
what's your expected post-operative course in the ICU, on the floor? Um, what are some of the complications that might be seen uh, and, and how do you manage them? So realistically, in order to undergo a uh, Fontan conversion, you know, obviously you've kind of checked your boxes in terms of if this patient's a candidate, meaning they can have a safe sternal re-entry, um, you know, putting them on bypass is not going to be challenging once you're inside the chest. Any residual lesions are going to be addressed regarding stenosis at the uh, pulmonary artery level, the SVC and the IVC for these patients. You have a way to provide adequate cardiopulmonary um, uh, protection, um, particularly cardiac protection in patients with pulmonary atresia. Um, I mentioned earlier that they can have dependency of their uh, coronary system, and so those hearts can be quite difficult to uh, protect, so making sure that those patients have had an adequate assessment preoperatively. And then, um, realistically, most of these patients can be plagued by effusions and drainage in the postoperative period. Um, they can be plagued by dysrhythmias, um, and, and even though we perform the maze procedure on these patients, making sure that they're adequately managed with a pacemaker and that they are protected typically with beta blockade or amiodarone from going back into any accelerated or junctional rhythm is very helpful for these patients. How about uh, as far as postoperatively once they're discharged from the hospital? When do you see them again in clinic? How often are they seen? Uh, you had talked about liver biopsies. Are there other specialists that uh, folks with uh, Fontan repairs or adult congenital patients in general should be followed up with? Yeah, so quite nicely, there's a lot of recommendations in terms of how patients with adult congenital heart disease should be cared for, and in particular, you know, the, the group uh, of adult congenital cardiologists are, are quite aggressive in establishing kind of metrics for caring for these patients in terms of frequency of echocardiogram, frequency of MRI, how often their liver should be assessed, et cetera, um, which is really helpful in terms of managing these patients. Um, I treat these patients like all my other adult cardiac surgery patients in the sense that I see them four weeks after surgery for a post-operative visit and then available for any typical wound care issues after surgery, but really the brunt of care for these patients falls onto the cardiologists themselves who do an exceptional job. And it's not just the adult congenital cardiologists. Oftentimes these patients are managed in conjunction with uh, electrophysiologists and with heart failure physicians as well. So, you know, it, it, it can almost be a full-time job for one of these patients in terms of visiting their multiple doctors, um, believe it or not. Well, let's get back to our case. Uh... MJ's hospital course was uncomplicated. She's discharged home on post-op day 12. She's doing well uh, at her first post-operative visit and routinely follows up with the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Center. However, despite her early improvement over the next several years, her condition deteriorates. She's uh, admitted with heart failure symptoms increasingly more often. Uh, she's now 31 years old and is admitted uh, requiring IV milrinone uh, for hemodynamic stabilization. You had mentioned some aspects of this a little bit earlier, but when do you consider mechanical circulatory support uh, or transplant or advanced therapy options in these patients? Um, and when do you determine that those are you know, not beneficial interventions and, and uh, maybe pursue other routes involve palliative care or things like that? Yeah, again, like a very tailored and um, individual discussion for each patient involving a multidisciplinary team, and that's really the best approach for these patients. Um, these, these can be um, 
very, very challenging discussions. Um, and oftentimes, you know, these, these patients are um, really tug at your heartstrings, so to speak, in terms of, you know, you, you want to be able to help them and not every patient is gonna be a candidate for advanced support or for transplantations. Um, mechanical circular, circulatory support is challenging in the Fontan circulation, oftentimes because their issue is not the pump. So you're not really putting in an LVAD, so to speak, or an RVAD um, for the sake of helping a uh, dysfunctional systolic um, you know, pump. It's really in terms of how are you going to get blood through the lungs and into the left ventricle, so that, or into the left atrium, the common atrium, so that you know the the systemic ventricle can pump it out to the body. And um, there is currently no real pump that exists for the Fontan circulation. There's nothing that exists for the pulmonary circulation, a subpulmonary pump that helps to get blood through the lungs on these patients. Um, we have a uh, successful, albeit limited, experience at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia with, um, you know, adult-type ventricular assist devices for Fontan patients um, by placing the uh, device into an atrial position and using those for the systemic circulation. You're, of course, still dependent on having blood travel through the Fontan to get back to your common atrium, to get back through your pulmonary veins, and uh, it's not always uh, successful. Um, these patients, I think, do best when they are referred early for transplantation. And again, not every patient is a candidate. We've taken a particularly aggressive approach at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and UPenn, where um, we perform combined heart-liver transplantations for all adults who are referred for transplantation, for cardiac transplantation. Uh, the reason why is because the majority of these patients already have severe liver dysfunction. So not only do they have potentially bridging fibrosis, but many of these patients have progressed to cirrhosis over time. And uh, we have found that, you know, combined heart-liver transplantation is a really great therapeutic option for these patients with concomitant advanced liver disease. Um, not everybody takes that approach, um, but it has certainly been documented with a lot of success by our institution, uh, Stanford, who performs these on block, and uh, the Mayo Clinic, who also performs a fair number of dual organ transplantations for the Fontan patients. With regards to the heart and liver transplants, um, what might be particularly challenging in a heart liver transplant, um, and, or are there certain challenges in and of themselves of finding a donor for uh, a patient with Fontan physiology, a failing Fontan, or adult congenital heart disease? Yeah, I'd say everything about it's challenging. So um, in the current you know system, these patients typically have a very long wait time, um, and oftentimes. Um, you know, we want to find an organ that's actually not a long travel time for these patients because, of course, you know, if you're if you're doing two organs, your operation's going to take quite a bit longer. Uh, we perform ours sequentially with the heart performed on cardiopulmonary bypass and then the liver performed from the same donor sequentially. Um, and so this can be a long operation where you're running into issues with ischemic time for the heart, let alone the liver. Um, the dissections can be quite challenging in these patients, so you want to have a team that's very experienced and well-prepared. We do these with two attending surgeons, one from the heart transplant team and one from the adult congenital team. 
Um, it's very common to prepare patients for not only a long wait time, but certainly complications after surgery. The most common that we've seen has been um, uh, renal insufficiency requiring dialysis after this. Um, but a lot of these patients actually have, you know, can have prolonged intubation times, um, require a tracheostomy. It's, it's, a, it's a massive operation in these patients. And although they've done quite well from it, I think we're still kind of fine-tuning our donor and our patient selection in terms of who is a candidate and kind of learning more and more about what makes people a good candidate for uh, heart liver, combined heart liver transplantation. Thank you. Um, we're just about running out of time here. And so I've got two more questions for you just broadly with regards to congenital heart, adult congenital heart disease that I'd like to ask you. The first is, uh, maybe three questions. The first is, what lesions other than Fontan, failing Fontans, do you see most often? Um, you had also mentioned that early aggressive intervention and transplant might be preferred oftentimes. Uh, what about adult congenital heart disease in general? Is it better to have a, an early and aggressive re-intervention strategy, or is it better to delay until symptoms progress? Um, in that respect, what is the role for a non-congenitally trained cardiac surgeon in operating on these patients. When is it appropriate? When would they maybe consider um, transferring these patients to a, a more specialized adult congenital program? You're getting right to the controversial questions, aren't you, Ben? <laughs> so, um, you know, I think adult congenital heart disease is a really interesting practice, particularly for a surgeon who likes a lot of variety in terms of what they do. So I kind of break this down into two categories of patients. There's those patients who walk in who are de novo diagnosed with congenital heart disease, who have been living their whole lives, not realizing that they had it. Most commonly, we see patients, for example, with atrial septal defects. We see patients with... Uh, a form of AV canal, atrioventricular canal, such as transitional canals who might have significant regurgitation from their left-sided AV valve in, in combination with the primum atrial septal defect. We see a lot of patients who are newly diagnosed with dysrhythmias who actually um, present with uh, anomalous pulmonary venous return, very common to see in the adult population. So there's that whole group of patients who for the first time are wondering why they weren't diagnosed as children and if they're sick and if they're going to require medication, why wasn't this something that was discovered sooner? So that's a very compelling population in a, in a sense that um, they're, they're really shocked by their diagnoses. And then you have the group of patients who have had congenital heart disease their whole life. Um, and it seems like you almost divide those patients into two categories. One is the group of patients who have known that they have residual lesions and sequelae from their previous operations, and they've kind of been dreading coming back for surgery. They quote unquote knew they were gonna need it at some point. Um, and then they present with uh, increasing symptoms and requiring surgical intervention. And then the patients, much like the patient we discussed, who's been lost to follow-up, um, and these patients can tend to do fairly well until all of a sudden they really drop off the cliff, so to speak, and present quite ill and multi-system organ failure and really requiring a lot of aggressive both medical interventional and potential surgical therapy. So the, the patients are um, wide-ranging and very interesting, and the pathology for each of these patients is very interesting, um, which you know, I realize not every cabbage is the same, but here we're 
really looking at a lot of different diagnoses. Um, some of my favorite cases are cases that have to do with left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, um, patients who need, uh, you know, for example, cono procedures as adults, or patients who present with recurrent uh, left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Um, you know, we have a large number of patients who have undergone the Ross procedure as a child who need re-intervention. We have a lot of patients who present um, after tetralogy of flow repair requiring um, pulmonary valve replacement, still, still a very active surgical therapy despite the fact that there are percutaneous options available. So really a lot of wide variety in terms of the adult population. I think when it comes time to uh, kind of what we should do, what belongs, so to speak, to the adult congenital physician versus the, um, you know, kind of adult cardiac surgeon. It really depends, again, very much kind of individually on what your skill set is. Um, you know, I've been in practice for a long time, and I can tell you right now, I wouldn't do a thoracoabdominal aneurysm. Um, that's just something that I don't do routinely. It's not in my wheelhouse. I would certainly send a case that that with that degree of complexity to one of my colleagues. Um, I think straightforward atrial septal defects and, you know, even some of the more more challenging quote unquote simple lesions um, can be very well managed. But I think if there's something that you certainly feel uncomfortable with, that's when you, um, you know, get, get one of your colleagues who really is uh, board certified in congenital heart disease um, involved and, and uh, you know, I think we're all here to kind of help each other and use our expertise to do what's best for the patients ultimately. And that's what each surgeon kind of needs to ask themselves. I think our program functions very well because we have such a great collaboration with our adult cardiology and cardiac surgery colleagues. And um, that's one of the one, one of the really big pleasures of, of this field is the collaborative aspect of it to really do what is best for the patients. And this is true whether it's, you know, complex aortic surgery, whether it's, um, you know, a VSD repair, for example, um, after a uh, hypertroph surgery. Um, but really, I think uh, functioning as one unit, kind of always offering what is going to be the best of the best to the patient is what's imperative. Well, that's uh, just about wraps up our conversation uh, today on adult congenital heart disease and specifically failing Fontan physiology. Uh, before we go, is there anything that you want to part with? No, I just wanted to mention if anybody's interested in uh, adult congenital heart disease or has any additional questions, um, please feel free to reach out. Um, we're, you know, happy to, uh, I'm happy to help in any way um, and certainly answer some questions. I think uh, congenital heart disease is a field that uh, continues to be very, very active as a subspecialty field of cardiac surgery. And um, this population is really the most rapid growing population in cardiology. And they're going to continue to have surgical needs. Um, they're challenging cases and they're interesting cases. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, the subspecialty is really uh, continuing to grow. Well, hopefully today uh, you've changed some minds and gotten them interested in adult congenital heart disease. Uh, I know I've learned a lot and uh, thought it was an interesting conversation. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for taking the time to sit down with us, and we will hope to talk with you soon. Thanks, Dr. Fuller. Thanks so much, Ben. I appreciate it.